There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 549. Come see us at Comic-Con. We're going to be at the Balboa Theater uh, Saturday, July 26th doing two Nerdist Podcasts. The second one is sold out, the 10.30 p.m. show. Our guest is going to be CM Punk. Uh, and on the early show, the 7.30 show, which we just added recently, our guests are going to be Evangeline Lilly from, of course, Lost and Lord of the Rings and Michael Rooker, Shiro Brother Merle. Uh, so I'm very excited about those shows. The 7.30 show still has tickets available, uh, so go online and find them at uh, on Ticketmaster and come see us. And then I'll be running around all over. I'm moderating a ton of panels. I'll, I'll post that this week, and then uh, we're doing an At Midnight Live on the Friday the 25th as well. So... It's going to be fun. Comic-Con's going to be good, you guys. Can't believe it's here already again. And soon it's going to be next Comic-Con. Because that's how time works. It moves in a forward vector. Um, at least as far as we perceive it. Whoa, my mind just twisted into the past. Which is my uh, my dear pal Guy Branham, who uh, worked at G4 and then went on to work at uh, Chelsea lately. And he's super, super, super funny comic and a phenomenal writer. And it's an all-around good guy. And also, like, is... Super nerd in the best possible way. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Guy Branum, G U Y B R A N U M, and he's recording his uh, album at Nerdmelt Thursday, July 31st. It's free, so go to nerdmeltla.com to see if there's still tickets available for that. Here's Nerds Podcast number 549 with Guy Branum. Now entering nerdist.com. Guy Branham joins the podcast now. That's the most intro I've ever done on a podcast. Thank you very much, Chris Hardwick. It's very nice to see you. It's good to see you. Um, I'm sorry that there were so many scheduling conflicts. You were actually supposed to be on uh, a few weeks ago, and then I had to shift a couple times because of um, my life, and I apologize. (laughs) You do a lot of things, (laughs) and we're all aware of that. One of the things I needed to talk to you about while we were here was Wired article from, I'm going to say, like 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. 
that I read that was how Chris Hardwick manages everything he has to do using technology. <laughs> but it was like a very I, – I was reading it at NBC like before a meeting and it was very like – it was just a very interesting sort of like, well, this is what you have to do, guy. Like this is what your career will look like most of the time. So you need to like – understand that that's going to, that's going to be the case that having to juggle a shitload of different things will be annoying but you have to and it's been very like it was very valuable to me in the long run to sort of like be able to like when i am in one of those situations where i'm having to rush from one job to the other or like secretly send off jokes that i'm doing at a different <laughs> job be like hey this just means that everything's going right yes 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 and, and i almost feel like it's you know, when, when we were growing up, I feel like the, the, the thing that adults were telling us was to pick one thing and just do that one thing and mm. do it forever. Do it well. And, and, but I sort of feel like with the, the way that everything has changed so much, particularly with what we do, is that, I, I mean, there's no stability in it. It's like, it's like basically taking all the money you have and putting it in one stock. Right. And it you just can't you can't do that. So we, I feel like to survive we need to do a bunch of different things that all tie together. If you get a good wonderful job, if you get the best job in the world, it lasts 7 years. Yeah, it, the best. Yeah. Uh and that's terrifying and you know when you when you look to the long run it, it is easy to get scared but also we tell dick jokes for a living <laughs> and you know get get paid money to uh to talk about the Lord of the Rings movies. Yes, so, yes, yes. You know, things so, are fine. Things are great. <laughs> things are. I mean, it is. I'm still glad that I have that excitement that when someone says, uh, "Oh, do you want to do this thing?" and with you know, like Doctor Who or whatever, I'm like, "Yes!" Like I'm still not. I'm still not over any of it. I still get just as excited as I would before. Yeah. No, I, I mean. Well, you can also get super grumpy. Like, it's easy to just sort of, like, be very much in the matrix of, of things that are going on and see little slights or little problems. And then you – there is something nice about having that step-back moment and sort of realizing, like, oh, this is lovely. You know, like, sometimes Sarah Silverman emails me. <laughs> like, that's that's something that – like, what – like – 15-year-old me would just be so stunned oh. th that I get to freely touch boys without fear and, like, have a job that is creative. Like, I just need to remember more how excited 15-year-old me. The 15-year-old me game is a great game. Because <laughs> like, I just did that because we just produced the Weird Al video, the tacky video. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those, oh, like... Oh, seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. And so... Uh, that was one of those things where I, and I think I even said when I, I like, you know, like the younger me would have been like, no fucking way. Right. But I figured out well, what I'm starting to figure out. Is I would have done the same thing, but just because Margaret Cho was there. <laughs> yeah, Cho was there too. <laughs> but um, the, uh, it, you can get grumpy because I feel like one of the things that we do in juggling all these different little jobs is we're putting out fires constantly. Yeah. And so sometimes you can take putting out fire mode into your personal life or home with you. And so what, I, what I've kind of um, – a lot of anxiety comes at night. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it spills over into the morning. And so one trick that I'm trying to get good at is to, when I'm falling asleep, just think about all the things that I'm grateful for. And when I wake up in the morning, think about all the things that I'm excited about. Yeah. And – or just thank – you know, happy for and grateful for and, you know, and it, and it kind of – 
it just sort of takes you out of the, oh, man, that one thing didn't get done the right. It should have been, you know, because we get we were really hard on ourselves because we want everything to be like it has to be perfect. And it, do, it doesn't all have to be perfect. Well, that night versus day dynamic is very interesting because like what we do so frequently involves shows at night. Uh, then you get home and you're all revved up and hey, I can still be productive because you can be productive whenever. It's not like you're just being productive at, at home or like at, when you're at work. So I so frequently will end up at two o'clock in the morning supposed to be doing something alone and isolated, just sort of like mulling. Mm-hmm. And I need to remember, hey, Branham, go to fucking sleep. <laughs> Wake up when it's light outside and there will be people to deal with and do it then, yeah. you know? Well, you have to... You really have to get good at learning how to rev the engine down because at night your brain is still spinning and it's basically just like, but but it's like the car is in neutral and you've just got the accelerator floored and it's going and it's you know you have to learn how to back out of that a little bit and just go okay I got done what I could get done today and I'll get done what I can get done tomorrow and that's that's okay it's uh it's sort of you know kind of trying to live in little compartments Here's a question for you. Sure. As somebody who has dealt with, like, substances and addiction. Yes, sir. There's just something so weird about, like, stand-up is awesome and great, and you, like, it is a great fix, uh, but it does fuck you up for a little bit. Like, if, like in a good way, but it, like, you know, it fucks with your head. There, and I just wonder... Like, how that is different from from being addicted to something like alcohol. If well, that, does that make sense to yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. You're basically you're basically talking about the the addict's mindset as applied to um, something else other than a substance, yeah. like a concept, like a rush or a high, or getting you know, like getting addicted to. And I guess my my thought about it is that you know, obviously, in a perfect world, you wouldn't be addicted to anything, right? Um, while you're trying to figure it out, it's better to <laughs> be obsessed with stand-up than it is putting drugs into your body while you're sort of working on the, why do I need this? And I, I, you know, I'm really, really starting to examine this question, and I think a lot of it has to do with where do you place your self-esteem? And I feel like we talked about this with Burt Kreischer yesterday, too. That it, I feel like there's something in the air where a lot of people are just sort of looking for answers, but I think a lot of it has to do with um, with with getting your self esteem from an exterior source, and sometimes that might be chemical, and sometimes that might be the power surge of being on stage and commanding an audience and doing stand up and getting them to laugh and control, you know, like that situation. And so I think maybe um, it's how can I just feel good about myself without anything else, without any distractions, without how do I shut the internal monologue? I mean, we're I think we're all just trying to distract ourselves from from uh toxic internal monologues and it's like i asked the goddamn question it is the thing of like oh god wouldn't it be nice if we could just be happy and satisfied with ourselves sure but also then how do you get empires you know (laughs) it takes broken sad people to build empires well it i think it i i think you know in any situation something can come along whether you know it's rejection or something you know whatever something you were doing didn't work or you felt like you fell on your face and you failed and or you just can't push something through. And then the question is like, well, what do you do with that? You know, you can either stew in it and be bitter, which I think is okay for a day, uh-huh. or, um, but not more than a day. Um, and then after that, you know, 
can you take that and use it as motivation to then, you know, I, I mean, I think there is a way to be healthily competitive, not, I feel like the unhealthy way to be competitive is I must win at all costs and I will destroy anyone in the process. That's very unhealthy. The competitive way, I mean, the healthy way to be competitive is, hey, I'm going to use this to try to do better. I'm going to see how far I can push myself. That guy did this. So I'll see if I can do this and maybe he'll do this and then I'll jump forward. And then we're kind of, you know, but not, not in the sense that you're trying to crush anyone. It's just how far can you push yourself. And I think that's a very, I think that's a very healthy way to be competitive because you, you really – you know, all life is in is in two states. It's either growing or it's dying. And as long as you're growing in some direction, you know, it's just unfortunately, you can do that in negative directions. You yeah. can you can you know you can grow in drugs and alcohol, but then you can also grow in you know in in personal development and 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 career stuff. And you know, so I think it's better to get on that side of it while you're trying to work out why you place so much of your self esteem into these external things. It is a it is a weird situation where you need to have you both need to be competing and wanting more and all of that, but there has to be some level of just like self soothing. Sure. Like I really feel like the, the thing you learn in stand up is how to get off stage, and if it went very well, remember how to be a person, <laughs> and if it went very poorly, like be okay with that and be through it, and again remember how to be a person. Yeah. Um, and you you can't really teach them like after you go to like a i lived in new york last year and i was always going to gay guys cabaret shows or like sketchy things or stuff like that and all of these theater people were like congratulating each other and being enthusiastic for each other and just realizing how much we don't do that because that's what you're supposed to learn in stand-up is how to not just get in your car drive home and like say that was that and move along and la is hard because you can ex- like succeed in a very external way here mm-hmm. and you can feel like it it needs to be about that and you want it to be about that but it also just needs to be about you being happy with what you of did. course yeah I'm- i had a i had a kind of a crap set at the improv the other night and um i just couldn't i just couldn't get on my feet in a 12 minute set and um you know, and I, afterwards I was like, eh, I guess that didn't go very well. Yeah. And then I was okay. And then, and then, you know, I've talked to a friend of mine. They go, how did it go? And I go, oh, you know, I don't really, I didn't, it, it wasn't that great. And they were like, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. I go, I'm not, I'm not being hard on myself. I just, <laughs> I'm just saying it didn't go that well, but I'm fine with it. Like, yeah, it, it's what, you know, when I, I remember when I, I, I'm working out with the same trainer for like nine years. And at the end of a year, every once in a while, he'll kind of remind me, he'll go, do you remember any single workout that you did? And I go, not really. And he goes, exactly. Because it's, it's basically the fact that you kept showing up. It's the sum total of all of those things together where the, you know, it's like you don't, you don't sit and go, that one day I really did this. And, and, and I kind of feel the same way with stand-up where I, I don't – I mean I have flashes of, oh, that was a fun show or yeah. this happened. But I don't really – six months later, I'm not still focusing on a thing that happened at a show six months ago. It all just sort of like – mashes together that's a fascinating way of looking at it i never thought about it that it is it is about habits and trends not incidents and at the end of a period of time you have that much more growth under your belts that you know you didn't you just don't notice it as it's happening yeah um i'm curious because you said 
when you were 15, you never thought you'd be able to kiss a guy or like like uh, be with a guy in public or whatever. Yes. So was uh, did you really honestly believe that when you're 15? You're like, I'm, I'm I have to I have to be secretly gay for the rest of my life. Yes. Well, then that's fucking that's terrible way to live. And so of course, a lot of what you're feeling now might be rooted in the fact that you weren't comfortable being who you were. Yeah. No. I mean. Like it was, I didn't come out until law school. Like it was a very, very long, weird process of me getting to a point where I even thought that this was possible just because, um, you know, it was, it was the nineties. It was the early nineties. You didn't really see sort of evidence of anything other than the most, like, I really thought that gay was just a terrible, terrible thing. And that I wasn't gay because terrible people are gay. Ugh. What I was was just attracted to men. And that was just because I was mistaken or wrong or, you know. Oh, man, uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's, it's, um, you know, uh, it's just the way it was. And so, like, there are times when I just get so delighted by the fact that I live in West Hollywood like I, you know, I get to go hang out with cute boys anytime I want to, and I get to have sex with them sometimes. Like, well, I mean, it's it's hard enough when you're 15 because you feel like most people don't accept you just for like broad, superficial things. Like, I like these kinds of movies, or I like I like this, but but the idea that you know your core sexual identity you feel like isn't acceptable is, I mean, that's. Of course, that that would be a difficult thing to go through developmentally. Well, it was more just interesting because it meant I wasn't playing the game, like the social game that most people at my school were, which left a lot of time to learn. Um, like it, <laughs> it was a lot of of like really really dorky energy being spent in other ways, um, and and that is like I frequently bemoan that um, like my deep deep ridiculous knowledge of the academy awards or you know like south asian parliament um like <laughs> ends in 1999 when i you know came out and suddenly it was the rest of my time was occupied those energies went elsewhere yes um but like let's talk about let's talk about the nerd thing and sure. the popularization of nerd culture because okay. It is a very weird thing for me because I grew up in a very small farm town in Northern California and liked all of the weird things that I liked and felt in very many ways that I just didn't have anything in common with the people around me. And now I live in a world where those things are everywhere and I am still uncomfortable with it. Like, it is very strange to me that, like, I can't be more comfortable with, like, you know, the the prevalent excitement like i do all right with you like game of thrones being something that swept america really does feel like an amazing gift but uh, <laughs> i like it can be like hard and weird for me like the point at which everyone started wearing no offense hilarious t-shirts right like i it's like branham like because i didn't have that thing where you're 14 and you meet that one other person who likes what you like yeah and you're able to just sort of like bond over that and I, I wonder whether it was the gay thing just took it was like a bridge too far it was like <laughs> you know just a little too much dorkiness um with a wrong flavor of dorkiness uh to be able to sort of like get that real like satisfaction from having like our tight little group i don't know i say this like 
in theory, it bothers me. Conceptually, it bothered me. But then working at G4 felt like magical home where when you, you know, one day randomly, uh, for no reason, the guy sitting across from me just uttered under, no, I uttered under my breath a line from Dune. And then he stood up and immediately said the next line from Dune. Uh, (laughs) And it was like neat because I... Again, fifteen-year-old me never imagined that anybody else. I mean, it's it's amazing that that, that there that you have these two parallel um, th- these two identities that are t- together, but also you know it fe- it feels like you um, figuring out how to be comfortable and open about your sexuality, but also being comfortable and open with the public about nerd culture at the same time. Yeah, and it and it leads to me being sort of like bad at both of them it leads to me being in a situation of just sort of like because there are those gay guys who really are committed to this is my nintendo t-shirt this is i've always maintained that if i had found like uh, like a, a reliable purveyor of plus size hilarious t-shirts in 2004 <laughs> i would be living a very different life right now uh, i remember my very first i mean it's the t-shirt thing for me and this is gonna, i'm gonna this is gonna make me sound like a fucking hipster but it started in the 70s with my very first uh, Well, Excuse Me t-shirt. Yeah. And it went, you know, all the way through the 80s. And, you know, I remember in 1991, I bought a Krusty the Clown cereal box t-shirt. And it was just, I was always, for me, I, I was always kind of expressing my comedy stuff through t-shirts for some reason. Because in the 80s, there were these great t-shirt shops in all the malls where they would just like iron on yeah and i had fuck tons of those so it was uh you know i don't know it, it, it is kind of funny now that well but it it is something kind of beautiful it's basically like having the balls to put out there this is who i am and it isn't who most people are but if you get this or you know this it's likely that we have something in common and i really like being in shitty little town with no mall where, you know, the likelihood, like, you know, I would I would buy role-playing game materials, but I didn't have anyone to play them with. So I would just have these complex campaigns that I would put together and then be like, that's enough. See, um, I was really lucky because I went to a school that had a great, um, and it was really just one teacher mm-hmm. that was who, I mean, like the guy looked like, it was weird. He kind of had an athletic build, but everything else about him, like he had a mustache, like a bowl cut, tucked his shirt into his shorts really high, like pulled his socks way up to his knees. Yeah. And um, I, his name was Mr. Flickinger. And Flickinger was a guy who single-handedly at my school um, built the computer lab, the chess club, and the math department. Yeah. And so he had, you know, there were maybe like five or six kids because I went to a small school. Um, who were in this chess club and, and computer club and, ma- and math department. And he, it was just open at all hours. Like you could go there and, you know, an hour before school, you could stay a couple hours after school. And so I actually was lucky enough. It was a very small group, but I had a group. I had a group of people that wanted to play D and had a play- group of people that wanted to play video games. I had a group of people that loved computers. It was that, that group. And so I was just, I was really lucky that way. Yeah. In a in a pre-internet day when it was all IRL communities and <laughs> IRL forums. I like I do seriously wonder how my life would have been different if I had gotten onto like 
shitty early 90s um the internet like if (laughs) if i had been one of those people who had like you know thought to sort of like reach out and find oh god i do remember falling into my first like mud and um those like the the first mmorpg Mm -hmm. things where you didn't do anything you just it was it was tokian themed and i do remember participating in like a a poet they were just having a poetry competition and it was like (laughs) this is so stupid but also this is who like that something like that existed was stunning and amazing to me um, it's possible that you might have come out a lot sooner if you had had like if you had gone in some news groups and you started finding forums and you started finding other people like hey I feel that way too like if you'd found your community earlier online you might have been more comfortable a lot sooner. This leads to one of my grand theories, Hardwick. Um, in the same way that you got movable type prints and then twenty years later, like the Catholic Church, well not twenty years later, but like within the next like fifty years, the Catholic Church was falling apart, and like every country was full of revolutions. It, like the internet, like broke homophobia. Like the internet makes it so you can't make gay people scared of themselves anymore, and we can find each other, and it's amazing and lovely. It was really only like it was once I had reliable access to the internet that I was able to like go in a scared way. Find something to masturbate to. Then eventually, <laughs> like, chit-chat with someone long enough to realize, oh, they are not scary monsters. They are not they. They are we. It's, it's all, you know, whether it's uh, gay, nerd, comedian, a- a- any, kind of, any kind of thing that you feel is, is who you are and you, you lack the ability to find other people like you. But I remember when I first, when I first went to college and I went to um, a, 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 at UCLA had a stand-up comedy club, like a group of people yeah. that would meet once a week. And I went and I went for the first time. I was like, there's other people like this? Like right. it's when you have that moment... And you find your tribe, it's, it's the best, it is the best feeling in the world to realize that you're not the weird, that you're not, I mean, you know, I was so accustomed to the reaction from other people. Uh, I would say something and they'd be like, okay, whatever. And when I finally found a group of people that was like, yes, and... Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm not broken. You know, like, I'm just this type of person. So after college, I went to law school in Minnesota, which was a mistake in two ways. <laughs> um, and the whole time I was there, I was with these people who, rightfully so, were, like, on the path to be professionals and were also Minnesotan. And they, I was too much for them. And the whole time, I had, like, barely, barely done stand-up my last semester of college. And the whole time, like, I didn't. When I started stand-up, I did not think about it like, I would like to do this. I would like this to be my profession. I was just like, I want to be around interesting people every night. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to have a place where I can go and be around interesting people. And, again, like, it is a weird kind of socialization, what, what stand-up is. But just having the solace of knowledge that any night of the week, you can go to a place and it will be full of people who you like and who are very very funny yeah um you know people who challenge you in ways that that most people can't challenge you right um it's you know but like getting to feel more alive in that way like yes having an audience really like you is super super fun but also just having that electric charge of somebody who can like chit chat real well like that's that's the best yeah and it also when you're around your group it if you have the right mindset it it should make you better it yeah. should make you better at what you do and it should make it should focus you and it should uh you know it's just it's just it's just finding a pack it's just finding finding a tribe and and then when you and it really 
it should elevate you, you know. But unfortunately, I think some people some people get competitive in the wrong way, and they don't, you know, or I shouldn't say wrong, but just in a way that is not beneficial to anyone. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's. I I love like I I love I hate being solo. I love community. I love a group. I love being in a writers room full of people and kicking jokes around. I hate writing alone. You know, uh-huh. I just like I just like being around like minded people who want kind of the same things. Yeah, I it's very funny because like so frequently any kind of work I just want to do it on my own. I am very like mm, just let me do this on my own. Uh, <laughs> I said that twice. That was pointless. Um, but. Writers rooms are real fun, and on a couple of shows I've worked on, they had writers rooms where you just came in and said your jokes, and you didn't like have you didn't have that electricity of right. hey, it's nine o'clock in the morning, you be fucking funny. Like it was not fun. It made the job like less magical. There, it is. I can forget that. Like going to a job where every morning you're just supposed to be on yep. from the from the get-go is pretty ridiculous and pretty fun. Uh, you you did such a great job at Chelsea, too, and I, 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 I had a really hard time fitting into that construct, and I, I, I feel like I did, for a couple years, I was able to kind of sort of push my way through it, but I didn't really... I, I just wasn't really that interested in that particular source material, uh-huh. and so it was very difficult for me to maintain... And then what I realized is that after a while, I started sl- – I had the same experience when I trans- – oh, this is – I'm just realizing. I had the same exact experience when I transferred to a high school. I went to three different high schools in three different states. And when I went – my senior year, we, my mom and my stepdad moved out here to Los Angeles. And I fell in with a group of like, like fucking cool kids. Like seriously – well, not, not cool for reals. Like the yeah. quote-unquote cool. It was the football players and the, and the cheerleaders from a sister school because I went to an all-boys Catholic school. Uh-huh. And our football team was, like, like serious. Yes. And I fell in with this group. And Which one did you go to? Jim? Loyola. Okay. And it was sort of like, uh, it was sort of like um, uh, Millhouse goes to Capital City. Uh-huh. Or, 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 and so, it, you know, I thought, oh, I have this new identity. I can try to fit in with these people. And I, I tried for, like, a month. And I just slid back into who I was and just... And realize and did not fit in with them at all, and so they didn't want to hear about nerdy things. They didn't want to hear about sci-fi and video games, and you know, like what Bobcat Goldthwait's last comedy album was. They didn't want to hear about any of those things. They just wanted to get high and fuck each other and get drunk on the weekends. And yeah. I didn't. I just I couldn't be be cool. And so um, I had the same. I feel like I had the same problem on on Chelsea's show where I just started sliding into like the, my reference bank. And at a certain point, I just kind of gave up. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to say these things. And, you know, the the 19-year-old girls in the audience, just it was not connecting with them. And so, I, you know, they were very gracious to have me on as long as they did. But after the last, after the last time I did, I was like, you know, I feel like this isn't really great for the audience. And I'm not really having fun trying to force my dumb uh, references on them. So I just kind of extracted myself from the situation. Two points in response. Yes. The general point is... Um, uh, fitting in is really interesting. And as somebody who is very physically distinct and sort of behaviorally distinct, I have never been good at fitting in in any situation. And it took me a very long time before I became comfortable just splashily not fitting in and just being <laughs> like, hello, I'm different. 
But it does mean in the long run, I've been terrible at fitting in and even in situations that would have been appropriate for me to fit in, you know, Um, which goes back to the whole nerd culture hilarious t-shirt thing of like sometimes it's like Brandon, you just need to calm down and have a good time and treat these people (laughs) like your friends. Um, So there's that. Chelsea lately is a fascinating situation because those ladies are so great and so enthusiastic and it was wonderful. Look, I went from G4 where it was 15 year old boys from Tennessee who watched it and knew who I was to this show that like super hot gay guys watched and (laughs) knew who I was. Did you get some action off of Chelsea? Oh, please. (laughs) Um, But at the same time coming to a point of one time I was opening for her somewhere and or maybe it was just like a bunch of a bunch of like people who knew me from Chelsea lately had showed up to something and I said something that was like sad or human or whatever and like they weren't they didn't know how to deal with that like it was too much for them I had confused them and the thing is is that like I did end up like on through Twitter and stuff finding some people who are like the best possible fans for me those like five or seven people who know like deep fantasy novels and too much about the British royal family (laughs) and care about the Kardashians and it's like those people are you know just having one person who gets your fucking joke is always the most wonderful thing on the planet um but like there was the weird thing of like uh maybe if if you stay here and are satisfied with this you know nice money and attention like from cute boys who do not get you you will just be happy with this and um that was you know it's an interesting it's an interesting kind of thing because it's always this question of how stand-up is fundamentally about asking people to understand you and it's like how much should I try to make what I do palatable to other people and how much should I expect people to come to me? And I'm not, you know, I'm a weird thing. I'm not regular enough that it's easy for people to just say, Oh yes, he is talking about an experience like mine. Um, and like, you know, like ladies are great. Ladies are wonderful. And ladies and I have so much in common, uh, and, and those ladies from Chelsea lately are really smart and wonderful and were so like generous and kind to us. Um, but there, you know, I, I, I sort of needed to do more than well, be and, good and, at making and, fun of and celebrities. Look, when, people, when people go to see Chelsea, they go to see like a live show, they go to see Chelsea and there's a certain, you know, like they've been conditioned because of what, what the show is to see a certain thing. And so, and that thing is is very kind of surface level jabs at celebrities. And so, you know, it's not like the round table was never about how human can we get. Right. You know? So it, it's not, I think it was just maybe in that context, but you, but you know, you as you, of course people will come find you. And of course people want to, you know, right. And that's the thing is that, you know, your, your job there was to do that. Okay. First of any all, more, by the way, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but any more than if it had been the guy Branham show. And then, you know, Chelsea had opened for you and the show was all about you guys. And then and then she was opening with jokes about, you know, like the card, you know, like whatever it was, like typical Chelsea kind of jokes. And then people were like, oh, that's weird. We were really expecting to see Guy be human and talk about this other thing and not 
this these kind of like surface tension jokes. Right. But it was for me just kind of I was being successful, but I was being successful as the gay guy from Chelsea lately. And that has done so much for me and is such a good thing for me. And it is who I am. Like, look, I like talking shit about celebrities. It makes me very happy. <laughs> um, but it was a lot just about challenging myself to do more than yeah, that. Yeah, it's, fi- it's fine for a while at a certain point. But then it's like, but who am I and what do I want? Okay, but I have to tell you a story. Sure. Um, so... During uh, the rough years that followed leaving the show, I, for a period of time, was writing for the most recent season of Punked because that was the job that I could get. Okay. And that's not a job that I should have. That job is, like, not, like, what my sense of humor is. And I don't mean that in a derisive way. I just mean some people are really good at stuff like that. I'm not amazing at plotting things. It involved (laughs) no writing of jokes, and it was a lot of what should we put in the gas station of this person who was in a Twilight movie. Um, So then I ended up getting a job being one of the one of the people who writes for Fashion Place. This was before the strike. But just getting to go and write mean jokes about celebrities at Joan Rivers' table was it washed over me like water. Like it was just so nice going from this job that was like exactly the thing that I shouldn't be doing to this thing that was just sort of like so comfortable and good and I knew how to do it and I liked it. Like, I, you know, I, I like writing And having jokes. Joan look at you and say, what do you think? Like she's fucking listens. Like she asks questions and she listens. Like it's... What went on with her and the strike makes me so disappointed because that was one of the loveliest experiences of my life that lady is like defined for me what comedy should be and getting to like sit at her table and watch her operate and then i don't i don't know how much you've got to see her in action but like that she would be up at four in the morning we would give her this all of these jokes she would narrow them down but then later when they were actually shooting the show, realized that one of the jokes that she had heard four hours earlier fit perfectly here, slided in seamlessly without any notes or anything like that. A woman who's in her 80s. It, like that and the one time Betty White was on uh, Chelsea Lately and I re- just realizing these people who have had jobs that tax their mind the in- all of their lives have been able to remain that sharp, that old well but i think the argument would be that because they had to do that all those years and didn't stop that that's what kept their minds sharp as opposed to just checking out yes you know like you you know it's a if you don't pick up a weight for 40 years it's going to be very hard to pick up a weight here's the other thing that was awesome about joan was one time we were like pitching jokes on something everybody laughed she laughed along and then when she got outside, she reached over to her. He told us this later. She reached over to her head writer, and she was like, everybody laughed at that. What's what's the reference that was made? And just, I feel like when you are famous or successful, it's e- it's because you've trusted your own sensibility, but you can get trapped in that sure. and not be able to see things outside of yourself. And just that this lady was working so hard. She wanted to have that good joke yeah. that everybody in that room laughed at, but she needed to understand it first. So she was going to do the work to understand it. Like, I just respect that so much. Yeah. 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 The, the people that continue to, um, I think continue to have success are the people that continue to ask questions and continue to want to understand. And, you know, I mean, 
Yeah, Mel Brooks was the same way. I mean, like he's an, he's another guy that like he just wants to he just loves to play and wants to understand. And he has he like he didn't get to a certain point and go ah those goddamn kids. Like he just yeah. he still has that mindset of like I want I want to learn I want to know and understand. And that I think if you I think as long as you have that you're okay. I do have one question for you though. Can you obviously you you can't really be in a relationship that with someone that doesn't understand you? Can you just hook up with someone that doesn't understand you? Like, could you hook up with someone that if you made a joke, they were like, "What?" And then could you still hook up with them, or do you need to do you need to have some level of of intellectual attraction? Let's talk about me in relationships, Chris Hardwick. Okay, I am incapable of human relationships. <laughs> Why is this? I pretty much only just have sex with people, but that's largely because I can't feel comfortable around someone who doesn't get me, and the vast majority. Like uh, the vast majority of the time, the people who get me best are not people I am sexually attracted to. My most functional relationships are usually with women. Some of them are with gay guys with whom I just don't have uh, reciprocal attraction. Again, back to the internet, homosexuality, and me. Um, <laughs> I insist I'm a very boutique product uh, and not something like when people talk shit about internet dating, I'm like, I'm not something you should just find at the corner store. You should need to look for me. I am the sexual equivalent of a left-handed oyster shucking glove. <laughs> um, like, I've never. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, but I, you know, I'm a very specific thing, both personality-wise and physically. Wait, I gotta go back for a second. First of all, the the fact that you would reference oyster shucking and then a glove and then make it left-handed. Oh, god damn it. Not everybody needs one of those. (laughs) Um, They'd be at the leftorium. Yeah, they would be at the leftorium. (laughs) Um, When's the last time you watched The Simpsons? Um, I, I haven't watched, I haven't watched this season. I I maybe watched one or two episodes from last season. I thought they were okay, but, um, I, uh, I've been too, I used to watch the Simpsons for, I guess probably for maybe eight years. Uh I would sort of have this ritual where I would, you know, like I would have dinner at around, you know, six or seven or whatever, and then just watch whatever episode of the Simpsons, the DVR picked up like almost every fucking day. And I would just watch the same episodes over and over again, you know, up up to a certain season. Then I was like, nah, I'm okay. When they when they started writing, when they started trying to write over the audience's head with mm-hmm. Harvard references, and I was like, all right, now you're now you're reverse pandering. Yeah. And so I I just kind of um, then I kind of fell off a little bit, and then I was kind of in between permanent living situations for a while, and so I, I just fell off the Simpsons wagon. It is weird to think that these people who have <laughs> these characters who have been so much a part of our lives. Have like kept going, and like it was just when you mentioned the Leftorium, I realized I don't know what Ned's been up to, and that's strange. <laughs> I think the Leftorium closed. Did the, did the Leftorium close, or did is it is it still open? Yeah, I don't know, and and it is it is going to be. I think it's going to profoundly affect me when that show is no longer being made. Yeah, because when you think about things in your life that you can rely on, yeah, even if it's just running in the background of your head, it's like oh, well, that show's been on since well. Essentially, 1989. Yeah. Um, that uh, to just to think that that's not they're not doing that anymore. Wait, no, I have to. Re- you know, even though I may not be watching all the new episodes, uh, I need to make a couple of points here. First of all, how much the Tracy Ellman show meant to me, I cannot emphasize enough. Well, of course. B, how like 
uh, we tend to define like sexuality as just a thing you do with your dick. And for gay men, at least, or particularly, it really isn't. And how much realizing that other people were weirdly preoccupied with the color purple or Tracy Ullman or Julie Kavner, it, it is such a similar feeling to having that line of Dune quoted back at you. Mm-hmm. It really is magical. But then next step, back to relationship thing. Yes, your boutique. That's, uh, that's where I sidetracked you because I, the oyster shucking glove killed me. Uh, it was the weird thing of... Chelsea Lately was the first point in time that I had people really, really legitimately like wanting to boyfriend me. And I was like... I felt more alone with them than I did when I was... There was this guy, and I felt more alone with him than I did when I was alone. And he was so attractive, and he was so nice, and he had a good job, and all of these things, because he didn't get me. Like, it's so weird. Like, (laughs) it makes me think more about what it's like for super hot people, but just sort of the experience of having somebody like you but not you or like not getting you or liking some corner of you and not realizing what's wonderful. And that sounds very self-absorbed. No, not but... at all. It's a, that's not sort of like, that's something that, that really everyone kind of deserves yes. to, have, to have that in a, in a relationship. But I wonder, and this, I mean, since I don't know you very well, this is, this might be a completely off base question. Do you think it's possible that you, that you painted your identity so much into a corner that you wouldn't that you don't want anyone to get there with you in a relationship. Oh God, yes. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I, you know, I wonder how much I'm broken. Sometimes I feel a little bit like uh, Moses, like getting the people through the desert, seeing the promised land, but knowing you're not going to get to the promised land, like. Let's be fair, guys. You know, I was pretty old by the time we started getting chill about these things. Like, I am very proud of the fact that I did still get to have illegal sodomy in Minnesota. Like, <laughs> um, there was still a law in the books. They were still enforcing it periodically. Um, yeah, and I, I wonder how things will be different for kids who grew up, grow up being able to sort of like more normally conceive of themselves in relationships but i did not think of a relationship as as like a possibility or a thing until i was a grown-up adult and like there are some gay guys who are just like who are 12 years old and they're like well i like boys so i will get married to a boy the way that a girl gets married to a boy and that's just how they (laughs) how they think about it but i didn't i so essentially you're your developmental years were essentially um, squashed by not realizing that this was something that was an option. And so those years that you would have maybe been developing and like, this is who I am sexually and this is who I am in relationships, this is who I am with other people, that was kind of was, was choked out a bit. Um, it was choking many things in those days. <laughs> um, but uh, that was a masturbatory reference. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. Um, but, uh, like, but also... I'm weird. I'm weird and a loner, and I don't know how much I'm blaming this on, you know, 
You may not so, be weird though. We're, so, we're weird by whose standards? Right. The thing is, is I. It's like, oh, was I broken by society and the world, or am I just one of those people who's not really into relationships? Maybe you're not. And if you're if you're fu- if you're comfortable with where you are, then that's then you don't have to be in a relationship. Well, and the thing is, is like, um, I do like people and find them very interesting. I just find strange the notion that the people with greatest primacy in my life should be those with whom I'm having sex. And yes, like... You separate physical and emotional intimacy. Yes, very much so. And I wonder, you know, I, I feel like I should be better at, at not doing that. Um, but this is where I am right now. Do you, when you think about yourself, do you like yourself or do you not like yourself? Um, I like my, like, I think I'm delightful. Um, but... I sort of assume that other people won't get it. You know, like, it's a very fundamental assumption that I am not for everyone. But it also means I fall really hard for anyone who seems to get it. You know, I don't think... I mean, ultimately... Because I think we can all develop a pretty us-and-them mentality, like a me-and-them mentality. Yeah. But I don't know if anyone... No one is for everyone, you right. know. Like no, no, even you know, the most popular thing in the world still isn't for everyone. Right. So, there, I mean, like... What is the new? What is weird? Like, what is weird? And and based on whose, uh, like, whose perspective? You know. So it's kind of an interesting question of what's normal, what's weird. Who you know? Like, there isn't, especially because our culture is so niche oriented now. Because it, we can be as as yeah. expressive and as unique as we want to be. You know what's you know is I don't know what's what's unique anymore. What's weird? I I don't know. Do you take guild insurance? And what's my copay? <laughs> That's all you need to know. I'm just saying, uh, you, you're very sweet. Uh, <laughs> you make me feel like I am in therapy. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Well, listen, it, you know, it's only, I mean, th- these types of things are things I think about all the time. And, and it's, you know, particularly, um, you know, it, it, you, I've been very reflective lately, particularly because of just things that have been going on in my life and, you know, work things and personal things. And so, you know, I, I just spend a lot of time in in my head thinking about what's what, what means this, what means that, how, how is you know, like it's it's been a pretty interesting it's been a pretty interesting time. Um, and uh, but I but the thing that I do appreciate about it is that when you're at the point where you're asking a lot of questions, that means that you're looking for answers. And when you're looking for answers, you'll eventually get those answers. And yeah. when you get those answers, you will feel a certain amount of growth. Right. At which point the process starts over. Yeah. I mean. It's there's something nice about trying to be somebody like I'm 38 years old and a lot of people who are 38 years old have figured out what their life is and they're just going with it. And it doesn't mean they're happy, though. It doesn't mean that they're happy. And it also means that they had they probably had well-defined cultural structures for them to fit into. And it's possibly a bad fit. I have decided not to fit. And it means that I have to figure things out for myself. And that's, you know, it's going to be rough and it's going to involve some, you know, some mistakes. Of course. it's all, Well, there's always mistakes. I mean, you don't learn without making mistakes. You can't be better. You don't get wisdom without making mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, there's no, I mean. Wisdom so- is overrated. I'd rather be one of the rich kids <laughs> of Instagram. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't. You know why? Because if... <clears throat> If you start your life out or if, you, if you're conditioned to learn that shallow pursuits are the only things in life, 
it's putting a lot of eggs into that basket. And sooner or later, one of two things will happen. The rug will get yanked out from underneath you, in which case you won't know how to fucking deal. Mm -hmm. Or you will be faced with a real tragedy or a real human thing, and you won't have the empathy or the ability to process it, in which case you'll crash. Or what will happen is this ever-expanding hole that can never really be filled by any amount of cars or selfies jumping out of your fucking helicopters or i mean it's just it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and then at a certain point there's no you you just can't fill it and then uh and then see the first two choices right so it's i i i am so happy that i had the experience growing up of being kind of a weird outsider rather than a kid who was popular because taught me that I could make my own way or it taught me that I could survive outside the pack if I, you know, and, and, and create my own little pack. Well, the other question I, I have for you is you had the very interesting experience of people very much knowing who you were and having like a nice like bump of attention and everything like that. And then things not being as great for a while <laughs> and then things coming together again. And how how do you think that informs you and how does it give you a different experience from people who just at 30 or 32 have have their big success all at once do you know what i mean i do know what you mean cuz i didn't really i didn't let's see i i didn't really start trying to turn my life around until i was 31 and so you know with singled out it was just a it was just a fluke and i just happened to be for whatever reason, the the kind of nerdy kid that I was was a, kind of like Anthony Michael Hall in Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. He he basically was a good talker, mm-hmm. and I was always a good talker, even though I was, uh, you know, like I could get uncomfortable, and you know, like I get uncomfortable in large groups of people. You know, unless I'm doing stand up, I get uncomfortable yeah. in groups of people. Um, but but essentially i can ma- i can be a good talker i can talk my way out of things it was my only defense mechanism because i was a little kid until i was in high school little yeah. little kid yeah and so um so you know when single mount came along uh, you know same thing so in high school this is the, it actually it's, this all ties together so in high school i tried to fit in with these these jocks and these cheerleaders and then that went away and then i ended up my best friend was a storyboard artist and then i was hanging out with D people again you mm-hmm. know then in college i'm like Ah, chance to start over. Because for some reason, I kept thinking I needed acceptance from this other group. My biggest challenge in life is that I play. I try to place my self-esteem into other things that are of perceived value. And then I get self-esteem from that. Right. Which is fucking dumb. I should be comfortable with who I am. But this, is, this has been my lifelong challenge. And I think it was the core. Eh, I'm going to go back to my whole who's going to make empires point. It's not so bad. <laughs> Keep going. Sorry. Okay. Okay. So, but I think it's the basis of like the alcoholism and, yeah. you know, like um, just codependency sometimes and mm-hmm. relying on other things. And so I think, um, so college was another opportunity. Like, oh my, I went to, from an all boys school to UCLA where there's 35,000 people and there's girls and there's, there's, you know, like it's social and there, you know, so I joined a fraternity for my first year and then slid into basically back into the comedy club, uh, you know, with people who also were in science clubs and, you know, like sci-fi clubs. And so I ended up sliding back again. So then, uh, and then so I get this I get this job at MTV, which was a total fluke, and it's like, aha, another opportunity to establish this cool 
whatever that is, identity. Yeah. And I think part of not being true to myself and not being who I was, starting it singled out and then just kind of moving on up until the early 2000s, led to a lot of uh, drinking and a lot of dissatisfaction with myself because I was kind of, I was trying to be this thing that I was not. Um, And then ultimately, you know, I quit drinking, I get some clarity. And then around about 2007, I kind of go, you know, I'm just going to like the things I like and I'm just going to pursue things that actually make me happy instead of trying to pursue things that I think other people want or other people think are cool. I don't fucking care anymore. I just, it's important for me to be happy with me and like the things that I like. And so I think that's why, um, uh, A, that's why when I first started, people were like, you're not a nerd because I saw single out. I was like, yeah, but that wasn't really me, you know? And, and B, I think it's the other reason why I'm so, um, you know, rah, rah, everyone just like pursue what you're passionate about. It's the most important thing in the world. Find out what you like, figure out who you are and then pursue that, um, you know, for the rest of your life because that was the experience that I had and it was, it was really lovely. And so of course, naturally I want to force that on everyone else. So that's kind of the, uh, that, that was sort of the, the evolution of it, but it's, it was, I never really thought about it in those terms, but I did keep trying to do the same thing over and over every time I would enter a new situation. And we moved so much when I was a kid that I, uh, that I all, I had tons of like, you know, like putting in another quarter into the machine, like, yeah. okay, I got to do over. And I always slid back. Yeah. And, and again, this is, this is what happened again after the singled out drunk Chris Hardwick era, but but at least in the, I'm sorry I referred to myself in the third person. But at least in 2007, it stuck, and I was like, "Yeah, I I'm this is who I am, and I and that's okay." You know, I'm still not entirely comfortable with myself, but I'm way better off than I used to be. I find very fascinating the temptation that happens when you are successful in entertainment to become more invested in like. The public persona of you as not you personally, but anybody is like this shiny, happy thing becomes more appealing than who you actually are. And then seeing people become scared of taking risks um, and scared that if they try and fail, people will realize that they're not this magic glossy thing that everybody thinks that they are. And it can become a fascinating kind of prison. Um, that's what's so great about po- something like a podcast or doing stand-up, though. Yeah, is that it, as long as you it, it it gives you an outlet, it gives you an outlet to say like, "Hey, I'm human and I'm scared of things and I I fuck up and I and and I'm I have doubts and I don't know if what I'm doing is the right thing, but well, I'm going to try." It leads to that weird break uh, of like some people are such good stand-ups and then they become extremely successful and they can't write a joke anymore because they don't have anything to say <laughs> or they're scared and they just keep telling the jokes that they told from when they were on their way up or but there's the other part of it too which is you know the the idea of comedy being to subvert something right and if you get super comfortable then what are you subverting anymore it's like well now I'm comfortable and that, like that hunger and that kind of desperation that the fire like you're talking yes. about the empire building thing like once you've kind of built it, you know, some people can because I think it's it's much more that's more goal oriented as opposed to and it's not that's not how it always is, but I think that's more goal oriented as opposed to process oriented. I think people who are process oriented yeah. are always going to be successful because they just love the process. People who are goal oriented 
once they achieve a goal, it's like, oh, that was the thing. A goal is a goal is almost meaningless. It's just a it's just a mile marker. It's just like, oh, this was a thing that was get that was that it was essentially a measurement of distance between yeah. where I am and here, and all the shit that happened in between. That's the important stuff. Well, it's so weird to talk to it's so weird to talk to people who are kind of starting stand up who are do not understand why you should do stand up and they're trying to get somewhere and just trying to explain to them you just kind of have to really like it you just have to want to do this yeah because you could do it for 6 or 12 years before it really starts to lead to anything yes and and maybe the thing that it should be leading to is just you being good at talking what you want to be able to talk <laughs> about and and but also at the same time once you do do that you will be successful like if you just like keep your head down and focus on what you should be doing Things will be fine. Like, I haven't had the most amazing career on the planet, but I pay my rent every month on a lovely apartment from doing something super frivolous. I should be very happy with that. Um, But also, just back to... (laughs) Your narrative is just so lovely. Your narrative is so lovely because it, it does... There's something so neat about somebody who, like saw this machine like that you are getting to have success while uh, understanding the game and how it's played and what's good about it and what's bad about it like i really do think when i see people who who move here off of a montreal from somewhere else and get the heat and get blown up it's exciting but like having been in los angeles for a while is valuable just because you see how it all works. You see people getting how, oh, like, f- fame as substance, an abusable substance. Sure, um, is a is a fascinating thing. And to it's me. dangerous because it, there's a ceiling on it, and also there's. I mean, when you look at the way that our that we deal with celebrity culture, it's very much. I mean, it, it's so represented by, I mean, Reddit is the perfect, it's upvote, downvote. Yeah. It's like, you know, the culture will upvote, upvote, upvote someone and then immediately go, that guy's got too many votes, downvote, 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 right. downvote, and then just like kind of like take him down at the same time. So if fame is your addiction, it's fucking dangerous because it, there's a ceiling on it. And not only is there a ceiling, it's a ceiling that could potentially explode into a million shards and cut you to ribbons. Yes. Also, you can't just go buy some for $300. <laughs> it's important to – that's why it's important to enjoy the process. That's, I think that's the most important thing you can do. It's why I strangely value the Kardashians because we're, we're, we're doing that thing. We're getting somebody to endorse our Midori and be on the cover of OK Magazine without linking it to a talent or a skill. <laughs> we're not making a musician do that. We're just doing it with people who do it for its own sake. <laughs> so you respect the, the – you think there's a certain amount of authenticity and the honesty and simplicity of that formula. I wouldn't go to the point of respect. I, <laughs> I don't necessarily respect the plumbing on a house. I just – I like that it's there because it does its job. Sure. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> – which, which is ultimately just to eat shit. Exactly. <laughs> I'm glad that we arrived at that. <laughs> so, what do you? What is it that you want to accomplish? Like, what do you? What, what do you see that you want to do that you feel like you know is still? I've never been good at cleanly articulating that, and it's kind of a problem in uh, my career. Um, I, you know, I would like to have a show that is mine. I would like to have a show that is mine and is 
a good articulation of of what I do, whether that is a scripted show or a non-scripted show. Uh, I don't know. But um, yeah, is that it's weird. It's like because as somebody who's primarily had a career as a writer um, so frequently therapists or managers or whatever are like, well, you're, do you really need to do stand up? And the thing is, is yes, I will always, I will always do it because it's part of me. But then there's also the thing of like, uh, out gay male standups are not a thing that exists that much. Um, and so it's part of my job is to exist and to be visible. So other young homosexuals can realize they don't have to wear a wig and tuck their genitals inside of their body uh, to be able to tell jokes uh, in public. Have you thought about doing a podcast? Uh, I did a podcast for a while, but then I moved to New York. Um, I've been trying to figure out doing another one. Because here's the thing. I think, you know, I remember when I... I, And by the way, between Singled Out and between the time that I started Nerdist and when I finally realized, oh... Was a ten year lull. Yeah, ten years of failed pilots and struggling, and I don't know if this is going to work. And oh, I got a job, but oh, I got a little bit of money. Oh, it just went away. You know, ten years, and so um, I would get frustrated because I've been doing stand up since ninety eight, and yeah. then in in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I'm like, God damn it, no one's coming to see me. But I've been doing stand up for so long because in my head, I'm a stand up first, and I know that. But then I realized. Well, everyone else doesn't know that. Right. And the reason they don't know that is because I have not put my voice into the world enough. Right. So what I would say is if you want that show, not that you asked me, but if you want that show, you have to put your voice into the world in as many ways as possible so that people know who you are. Yes. And so that your audience can find you. And then you can take all that somewhere and go, this is me. This is my point of view. It's very clearly defined. This is my audience. Do you want this or not? You know, yes. as opposed to, hey, I wrote a script and it's about me, and I know you don't really know me, but um, you know, and then you just kind of cross your fingers that they go, yeah, they see something about you that they that they just catch to. Okay, can I tell you a story? Sure. Okay, so year after I left Chelsea lately, I was doing all of the things that my managers and agents told me to do, which involved a lot of writing pitches for movies and TV shows that I never got paid for and never went anywhere. And it was frustrating, and I sort of went through my savings, and things were, like, starting to get bad, and, like, it was very frustrating. It was very frustrating. Um, And I... I did, the, I did the thing that you're supposed to do where you downshift and you just start doing a shitload of stand-up. And that was good. It was satisfying. It made me happy. It also sort of like opened my eyes up to a world that I had been not been paying attention to. And there were a lot of great venues where you could just start a show. And I was like, I should start a show. And I had a stupid, a stupid shitty idea from that I had come up with in the back of a van on the way to a quiz bowl tournament in uh, law school. And I was like, I will do that as a show. Uh, and it was a, uh, it's a game show talk show hybrid. And I just put it up at the improv lab. I now currently do it at your fine theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> I did it. And then it were uh, basically this comes down to the night after I did it for the first time, I could not go to sleep all night long because I was so ridiculously happy that this thing I loved so much, this stupid, stupid idea had worked. And it was just one of the most (laughs) 
it was the one of the loveliest experiences of my life because it was just fundamentally about oh do the things that you like like do the things that you like and that's the only way that people will yes because you're more excited about it you'll put in extra work because it's very personal to you and you know the thing that you realize is that you go okay well I'm not working this minute. Would I rather not be working on things that I don't care about right. or working – I mean I'm not getting paid this minute. Would I rather not be getting paid on things that I don't care about or at least if I'm doing stuff I like, at least I'm happy. Yeah. And then what you find is that when you get that, it just changes your energy and somehow it g- good things start to happen because you're in the right mindset for it and people are seeing you as like – Oh, that person is compelling and ha- they, they have something interesting to say because you are alive with the fact that you give a fuck about what you're doing. Well, also, like, putting it out there matters so much. Not just sort of, like, working on some – like, working on scripts is fine and all of that. But, like, being able to do something and then put it out there and show it to other people and have it exist on its own for its own be- – like – not trying to get somebody to buy it or not wanting somebody to like your script, but just like having it exist on its own is so good. It's why podcasts are so great, but just like standups can get in our own head so easily. Writers can get in our own head so easily. It's just nice to like put it out there to other people and let them respond. I mean, the, the bummer part is that standups and writers, we get into our own heads, because that's the nature of our job. Yeah. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to overanalyze things and go, what's weird about this? And how can I make this? And how can I connect this? And then, unfortunately, when you run out of other things to do that with, it's sort of like <laughs> the hay baler all of a sudden starts eating itself to just like make bales of something. You yeah. know? Like, and that's, that's where your brain starts going after you. Because it's doing the thing that you taught it, you know, like, that you taught it to do, basically. It just, you know... You're just not putting in other things. So it's like, oh, okay, well, now I'll just sort of turn inward. It, I mean, I read The Artist's Way, and it's like, ah, oh, this is bullshit. This is so stupid. But when she tells you, you, you should go and look at other people's art. Like, you have to – you you can't just expect your mind to chew on itself for all of time <laughs> and have that be your job. And so you, you this is a path that you – you want to take this and you want to do bigger things with this particular... It's called Talk Show, the Game Show. You should talk to Jack Hairgreth about it. I know he's been talking to you about doing some stuff for Nerdist. Yes, and cut this out of the podcast, and I didn't mean to bring that up, but also I, you know, should be pushy sometimes. I don't know. Um, the point is, yes, I love it. Do you uh, want to do it as a digital series or do you want to take it to television? Um, I don't know. I like it, and I think it is a good format. Um, and my advice is yes. I, personally, I think it's. I think. I think it can be better to do it as a digital series. Yeah. So that you have an example of it working. Yeah. So that then you can take it to. I mean, you know, the the best case scenario is like a fucking shit ton of people watched it, right? And then all of a sudden, networks are like, oh, interesting. But even if they don't. At least you can tell when you watch something like, oh, there's, there's really something here. Yeah. And then at least that way – because if you go into a network kind of blind with your own ideas, they can be like, well, how about this and how about this and how about this? Well, that and the fact that like what's TV? Like what is TV currently? Um, at At Midnight, you guys have figured out 
a really good answer to what TV is right now and how to make it participatory and interactive. But we're at a point right now that we we don't know what television is. Like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu clearly are the future, but what like what broadcast TV is supposed to be? Like there's not a good answer and we're still using a structure for building it that we made in the 60s. <laughs> um and it, we're failing. Like it's you know, so, some bright, some bright and capable one of us needs to figure out what the answer is. Uh, I wish I had it. You know, like. Well, I think the answer is you know, you try to you make your thing, and if it doesn't work, you make another thing, and then right. you make another thing, and then you make another thing, and then you know, eventually, just just make sure that you like the things that you're making because. The best case, worst case scenario is that you do get stuck with one of them. Yeah. And then if you don't like it, then all of a sudden the thing becomes like that attractive lawyer you were dating. And then you're like, this thing that I'm with doesn't get me. And it's, I have to do it every day. First of all, he was a jet pilot. Okay. Second of all, uh, I, I firmly believe that Los Angeles is a machine for making everyone's ninth best idea. Like you go into a room, you're like, my heart and soul are in this. And they're like, yeah, but do you have anything with dragons? Um, <laughs> That's my ninth idea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, um, we, uh, I just met with Jack today, actually, so... Chris Hardwick, I did not mean to be a dick to you on your own goddamn podcast. You're not being a dick to me. You're, I'm so sorry about that, but it was You're that doing me a of, favor. Like, but guy, you should be forward and believe you're in doing yourself me a, also. You're doing me a favor. If, you know, like, if you have a show that you're passionate about that's good, that you want to p- pour all of your heart and soul into, and we can help you do that, you're doing me a favor. I'm not doing you a favor. <sighs> that's your that's your that's your uh bullshit i i got my way through addiction the whole world is a sunny and beautiful place look at things i will continue to be uh dark and angry and no the whole world i i i i I don't think the world is a sunny place i really don't you're a goddamn sweetheart there are there there are bad things in the world there are very bad things in the world and and i i just if I, of course, I could focus on those things, and I do sometimes, and I, you know, like I do have, I do have moments where I'm like, what am I doing? And I'm dumb, and I, this is stupid, and why did I say that? And this, you know, I fucked this up, and I did this dumb thing to this person, and I don't fucking, you know, like, ugh, what am I doing? But then I also know that I can either go down that path, or I can go, well, What's good about this thing? And if I have to force myself to find things that are good about something, and then ultimately that I do start having a better, more positive outlook on things, that's a fucking great skill set to develop, and I'm, I'm still working on it. It's a terrible and horrible thing to realize. <laughs> so much fun to just be me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, and then the, the problem is that I have a... Jonah always said, I actually have a very mean sense of humor, and, yes. but I just don't... I, I've just... I've just too many times in the past it's come out the wrong way and I hurt someone's feelings and I don't like that. So I actually, you know, I actually, I've, eb- I ebb it back. No, it, it, one of the most interesting things, like as somebody who really is just defines myself as claws and scar tissue um, <laughs> is, you know, and sort of thinking of myself as needing to be scrappy and angry to defend my place is coming to a point of realizing like oh hurting somebody's feelings doing something that you shouldn't have done just being so used to like being aggressive and lashing out like just on twitter or like saying something 
and then you know somebody reflects that back to you and you're like oh god Branham like <laughs> what did you just do and it, it really over the course of the past two years on stage like a couple of things that I've done that somebody afterwards was like oh like that was too much or you know it it, it hurt it forced me to sort of like reevaluate reevaluate myself and I appreciate like so frequently as stand-ups we can be reactive so many of the things that have happened online over the course of the past couple of years with you know blog article and then comedians telling people how wrong they were was comedians just not listening and there is something so valuable about having somebody reflect back to you and having to think about why did I really say that why do I really need to say that and also like Am I not at this point a big and strong enough boy? But we're all, but we're we're just we're just basically like, um, you know. I think part of the reason why we look to humor, just for whatever reason, the, that this is part of our makeup, is that uh, you know it's all defense, and it's just like you get more and more defense, and you build up more and more defense, and then all of a sudden it's, you know, yeah. Uh, you take a swing because you're just in that mode yeah. and then you're like, Oh shit. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just, I don't know. I didn't mean to, you know, and, yeah. then, you, and then you realize like, Oh, maybe you don't need to take a swing. And you know, if someone, you know, our, our, maybe our egos don't have to be so fragile that if someone takes a shot at you and uh, you know, that it's, it's really not the worst thing in the world. It's yeah. not really any different than any shot that you took at anyone else when right. you were making jokes. And so it's sort of, I don't know. I, I, I'm in a much better place with all of it now than I used to be because, again, we, especially with stand-up, you know, we place our self-esteem in the hands of an audience. You know, here are a bunch of things. If you react in a certain way, that means I did good and you like me, and that makes me feel good because I'm getting rewarded with that chemical in my brain. Yeah. And, you know, as and and that's more goal-oriented than it is, again, process-oriented, where it's like, I just like being up here in front of people and talking, and they can like some stuff. They don't have to like all of it, but I feel good about what I'm saying, and I'm nice to them, and we we come together as a group, and you know, and uh, and it can be fun. Like I really, I'm really appreciating that aspect of, it. and I think that's why it didn't really bother me when I had you know uh, uh, that set at the. I mean, like a few years ago, I think I would have been like. I'm better than this. What happened to me? I'm what am I losing my I don't understand as opposed to like, yeah, it's one fucking set. But what's lovely about it is that you and I realize we've been doing this for a while and we need to end. But what's lovely about it is that you are at a point where you could just say, I'm bigger and better than this and walk off and not not want to do stand up anymore because you don't have to deal with those crappy <laughs> improv sets. And there's just something so lovely about still dealing with those crappy improvs. Well, it's also it's also good because it it just reminds you like it reminds you um hey, this is a never-ending you, you know, no no one ever gets to the place where they kill every time and if you did, you might get bored. It doesn't it reminds you that you're still you know, that you still have work to do. Games aren't fun once you use cheat codes. They're <laughs> fun for like 15 minutes after you cheat. Okay, I do have one caveat to that which okay. was um, when I played Warcraft, Warcraft 2, and Starcraft, um, it was fun to go through those games the real way. Yeah. And then to go through and basically just be invincible, that was really fun. I really liked playing Warcraft 2 that way and Starcraft that way, too. It's getting to be a rich kid of Instagram. Like, there, there, <laughs> there is the fun to it. Did you ever play World of Warcraft? Um, wow. Uh, I 
almost dabbled in in the beginning. And the reason that I didn't is because I had quit drinking. Uh-huh. And I sold all of my games and all of everything because it was... I had. I also had an addiction to video games. I lost two thousand five to that game, <laughs> and like. so I, knowing that, knowing that, I consciously did not. Um, I did not play for a very long time because I knew that if I did, I would not get anything else done because it would be all I could think about. Would you like? Do you remember what your originally rolled main character was for uh, the game? Well, I always, I always play magic users in everything. Hardwick. The whole point of this was that I was going to miraculously determine what race and class you were using my judgments of your character. Oh, okay. Sorry. Now you already told me this. I'm sorry. I always play... Listen, when I played Diablo, I played fucking Sorceress. Like, I always play... <laughs> I always play a magic user. Always. And I think there's something about magic users... Like, I, I look at comedians as kind of magic users because they're sort of like incantations, basically. Yes. Um, well, it's why so many lawyers also become stand-ups. Because, like, that whole coercive use of words sort of you know yeah cast your spell sort of thing but i have i ha- i i it, it i am i am back into wow now because um you know i'm gonna go to blizzcon this year it's so much fun so and and i really love i i just i i it's it's a piece of my life that i was so afraid of for so long because really just i was just afraid of myself yeah. and what, what it would what i would do but now you know but lately enough of my life is in place where it's i it's I'm not going to not go to work. Right. Uh, it was really more for the period of time when I was trying to create work. Um, that rather than, you know, rather than creating it. And, and it really is just a part of my obsession. That's really interesting. I never thought about it that way. But uh, like when, when, game, when games are there to let you chill out from the thing that you do to provide you with a sense of satisfaction, that is fine. When games are providing you with a sense of satisfaction, like providing you with that, like thing you did today. Yeah. Um, that's a, a which is, which is okay sometimes, but I just, I just have a brain that would just do that. If that's all I did. My point about being a magic user, as opposed to a rogue or a warrior is just, there is not magic in real life. There are weapons. We have better weapons yeah. in real life. You can be a thief in real life. You can be a thief in real life. You can be a warrior, and we have guns. Like they're, that's better than an axe. We have axes too. But like, you know, being able to slowly drain someone's life away, mm-hmm. you can only do that in a relationship. Really, you know, there's nothing more satisfying than building up your magic points by taking someone else's hit points. <laughs> <laughs> And isn't that really what comedy is? <laughs> I mean, in a nutshell. So we're just going to walk away from the microphone. All right. <laughs> Enjoy your burrito. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, 
Had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.